Hello, and welcome back to the Balanced Garden Podcast. I'm your host, Tiger Lily Raphael, and this podcast is about what's happening in the world inside and outside at the time of each episode. But you can listen to it anytime, and hopefully you'll hear something you've not heard before, or at least enjoy hearing it in a new way. In this episode, Blue Moon, I'll be musing over the Days of the Dead that are celebrated around the world on October the 31st. We'll hear a special story from the fantastic Embers Collective. And I'm talking to a friend and very talented musician, Cosmo Sheldrake, about the animal and musician maybe most associated with the dead, the owl. Before that, though, to time itself. This Sunday, daylight saving time ends as the clocks go back and that daylight being saved for the end of long summer days disappears. Up until now, the gradual tardiness of the sunrise and sunset has been less obvious than it soon will be, which, with a sudden drop in temperature, can be a real shock to the system. The British Railway's standardisation of time in 1847 started the clock on an industrial lifestyle, conforming to a consistent year-round schedule of daily activities, unlike agrarian and agricultural societies, when lives were determined by the hours of sunlight provided by any given day. Until the 14th century, the length of years, days and even hours varied throughout the seasons. Dividing daylight into 12, for a Roman, an hour could last from 44 to 75 minutes, depending on the time of sunrise. For us, the shock of changing clocks interrupts the circadian rhythms which govern our sleep patterns and moods. Responding to the amount of light we're exposed to, our body clock tells the brain when it's time to sleep and when to wake. But when an hour of daylight disappears overnight and the temperatures fall, we tend to start spending up to 90% of our time indoors. And without a daily commute, some of us might be spending even more time indoors this year. Being inside actually increases our exposure to light at the times when it's dark outside, which confuses the clues we rely on to get to sleep at night and wake up in the morning, and that can seriously affect our quality of sleeping and waking time. There is, of course, lots of advice out there from sleep experts, and I'm not going to patronise you with six condescending health tips for surviving the winter, like go outside more, reduce screen time before bed, or go to bed 30 minutes early on Saturday. These are directions that we're more than capable of giving ourselves, and not what this podcast is about. The podcast is here, I hope to help illuminate a path through the changing seasons because I think that giving attention and appreciation to the outside world can make it easier to understand and accept the inside world, contrary to the constraints of industrialised culture. You saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own 
Another symptom of the standardisation of time is the appearance this month of what we call a blue moon, which this year happens to fall on October the 31st. Originating in folklore, it's not clear where the phrase blue moon came from, as it definitely is not blue, but there is a connection between the Old English word below and the verb to betray, which could describe a moon that betrays the usual lunar cycle, or the betrayal of the calendar itself, which originally rotated around the lunar cycle and not the other way around. Each month was named after its full moon. The word month itself is derived from moon. So every few years when there are 13 rather than 12 full moons, Blue Moon was the nickname of the nameless 13th moon, officially coined by the main farmer's almanac. The meaning of a blue moon was, however, itself betrayed originally used to identify the third full moon in a season which featured four rather than the usual three full moons, an incomplete pattern was published in a 1964 edition of Sky and Telescope that falsely concluded a blue moon as the second full moon in a month rather than the third in a season. So, if like me, you didn't know any of this, now you know. The animal probably most associated with the moon is the owl. Its round, rotating face, stereoscopic eyes, silent flight and solitary nocturnal nature has earned it a status as a symbol of death, vigilance and wisdom over the 60 million years it's believed to have existed for. Cosmo Sheldrake is a very talented musician and old friend whose album Wake Up Calls is composed from recordings of endangered British birds. A nine-year project, the album moves from dusk through dawns and daytimes and closes with the owl's song. As described on the album's Bandcamp page, the project has slowly changed over the years. Some of the pieces started as Christmas presents for family and friends. The presents were intended as alarm clock music in the hope that they might help people wake up in the morning without the anger often inspired by traditional alarm sounds. They worked well but had a slightly unintended side effect. Everyone who used them reported that they had become increasingly sensitised to the sound of the dawn chorus and would often wake up at the slightest sound of birdsong. Is this true for you too, Cosmo? Do the birds keep you up now? Well, more so, I find that the, um, I find it hard to sleep past the dawn chorus and certainly more so since since I've been using this music as alarm clocks, I find it much harder to ignore um, the sudden eruption of birdsong in the morning. Um, also, because where I'm currently living is um, in Dorset, which is where I've done quite a lot of the recordings of the dawn choruses. So they're specifically when I when I hear a dawn chorus here, it's it's the one you know it's it's a lot of the same birds and the same proportions of birds and ratios of different kinds of birds that that I've become so accustomed to waking up with so I find it yeah even harder even harder to sleep through a dawn chorus here than I might somewhere else just because the specific sounds of the dawn chorus here is something that I've become so um sensitized to acclimatized to that's quite a nice 
routine to get into waking up the dawn chorus um do you find the nighttime birds can keep you awake as well i mean there's been some in the last couple of months here or month particularly there's been a, a sudden surge in owl activity i mean they've been more vigorous and um and sort of uh, busy at night time it seems but i mean it, def- it doesn't exactly keep me up as much as the as the dawn chorus but it, it can sometimes definitely wake me up and keep me up for a while definitely i find the album um really relaxing but also quite invigorating and inspiring kind of depending on the time of day or night and my energy levels but my housemate has actually been using it as her alarm clock so I've warned her of these (laughs) (laughs) side effects Um, and and have you always been sensitive to birdsong or is this something you've had to sort of train yourself to notice? Well, I mean, I grew up um, with my dad, who's a biologist and a naturalist, and I grew up spending quite a lot of time outdoors and very much being encouraged to try and be able to identify different birds. Or um, I was always known well, by my dad, and I think, not sure whether it was him trying to get me to be a bird spotter or whether he was just uh, commenting on the fact that he thought I already was, but he always used to refer to me as the family bird spotter. But I, I think now, like when reflecting back on it, I think it was more to try and encourage me to... Um, to be more of a bird spotter but no I, I mean I definitely grew up listening to birds and thinking about birds and and trying to um identify birds but then slightly fell out of it for a, a, a few years and then rediscovered it through beginning to make music from bird song um, and then found myself getting further and further and deeper into it um over the last few years and with the recording the bird song um is each song composed of many recordings of of one bird? So, for example, was the owl's song like one owl recorded on one night or many different owls and different sessions? So that was many, many different owls. And, and also not all of the um, birds on the record are ones that I've recorded myself. Some of them have come from archives and some of them have um, come from different friends or people that I've licensed sounds from. Um, so with the owl song, it, it's composed using recordings of all of the British owls. Um, and so there's a little owl, a short-eared owl, a long-eared owl, a tawny owl, a barn owl. Um, I think that's it. There are, there's one more British owl actually that sort of lives up in Scotland, which I didn't include unfortunately, but, but yeah, so no, I didn't actually record all of those sounds at all. I recorded um, a couple of the tawny owls on there. Um, so they come from different places and times and are kind of then threaded and, and, and sort of collaged back together. Um, and also I don't think that necessarily all of these owls would naturally exist in the exact same place. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe they would also. So that was more, more just a kind of homage to all of the, the various British owls as opposed to a, a kind of um, study in one ecosystem or particular recording. So, I mean, here in Dorset, where I've been living for the last six months, there's a huge amount of tawny owl activity. Um, so I've, um, I've recorded some of the owls just just here, um, where I've been living in, in the Dorset-Hampshire border, that's um, surrounded by woods. And, um, mm. So yeah, so, so some of them came from here. How did making the album affect your sort of relationship with the birds and also music in your own music making process 
Well, I think it's it's been a really interesting process just spending that much time working with and listening to Birdsong. Um, also, for the whole of the last few months when I've been finishing off this record, it's very much been surrounded by birds. I mean, one of the things that's certainly stuck with me is just as I've been doing more and more field recording and getting into the kind of mind frame and headspace of, of just listening and trying to listen to, I, I think right at the beginning when I first started out doing field recording and working with um, sort of found sounds or music concrete or whatever, whatever people choose to call it, but um, I would often go in trying to find one specific sound or something or I'd, um, but more and more I've just become attached to the idea of trying to listen to everything at once or trying to expand my ears further and just trying to understand what's kind of happening already rather than thinking about how I could use that sound or reframe that sound or um, recontextualize it to do what I want to do rather than listening to what's already sort of happening. So I think over the last little while and through the practice of just listening and recording sounds, I feel like it's, it's very much changed my, my awareness and um, rather than focusing on little details, I'm trying to sort of zoom out and try and hear the bigger picture and the kind of interactions between the different species or um, creatures that I might be listening to. Um, and also then through that, finding the, the inherent music in that space um, without then having to kind of impose it on that space, if you know what I mean. So, so it's, it's, I've become certainly more um, able to hear the, um, the bigger picture and, the, and the, the music already just present in the world. Um, which, which has, I think, will and certainly has had a, has a big impact on, on the way I just feel about and think about music. Um, yeah. It sounds like a, you know, a way of, of engaging with the world that using your ears that, that everyone could do just a, a, a little bit more. And Absolutely. Um, I like that concept of found sounds. Um, is it very much that that what you're hearing in the outside world is is sort of inspiring the music that you make now like you say rather than the other way around like going out to find specific things I think a bit of both there's definitely a bit of push and pull I mean but I've always found that inspiration certainly seems to arrive from without if you know what I mean it's 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 normally something that feel, feels like it's gifted or, or, or arrives um, from outside me rather than something that just an idea that I might come up with or something. It feels like it just hits me and lands um, with me somewhere. And I, I I certainly feel like birds have helped help that process along just through tuning, becoming more kind of in tune to to the sounds around me. So I, I feel like I'm more ready to listen and therefore probably more likely to. Um, to be ready and waiting when, when inspiration does strike. Then, um, yeah, but I still certainly, there's still, you know, there's different ways of, of trying to tell stories or, um, or uh, explore sort of narrative. And sometimes you, I, I might begin with a specific sound that, that um, suggests something in my mind that I feel needs to be explored. Or other times I'll just be listening and try and just respond to the, to the things that just exist already. So it's definitely a bit of both. Did the bird song inspire you to make the album? Definitely. I mean, it was, I mean, the whole time I've been making it, I've never really conceptualised it as an album in my mind. It was, it was just a collection of pieces that I was writing for people. And at the time I was trying to think about 
like music that had specific purposes or functions as opposed to just just existing in its own right it was music to wake up to or um and at the time it was also lullabies and um just thinking about the role of music in uh, throughout the day and some of the functions i just i became quite interested in the idea of trying to make music that that had a specific time of day or time of year or place um in the kind of calendar or, or timetable um just as another way of just thinking about the role of music and um and i think that kind of came more out of thinking about folk the folk tradition and folk songs and there's you know there's very much songs that exist in places that describe particular places but also songs for particular functions or gatherings or ceremonies or rituals or whatever it, whatever it is or, or different times of year you know wassailing songs or carols or so I think I was just thinking about it in terms of um, not exactly functional in a kind of reductionist sense but just music that could also serve another purpose that wasn't just for sitting and listening to in a kind of abstract sense. That's kind of what this podcast is inspired by is you know what people were actually have been doing at this time of year and what is happening in nature at this time of year and where where those things meet you know why do we um go trick-or-treating <laughs> or mm-hmm. where where have these things come from and and where might they go kind of in this totally unprecedented time so that's that's kind of why I've focused in on the owls song for this conversation because the association with the dead and I just wondered what your relationship has been with the owl and the owl song kind of how it how it makes you feel working with that particular bird well I mean there's always a, certainly an association it's, it's impossible not to I think we all inherit um, certain associations from mythologies from stories from kind of just the things we grow up with these cultural tropes that we all um we're not we all but there's different ones that different of us you know we all embody different ones or take on different ones whichever ones we've grown up with or but um but certainly owls do have a, a kind of mournful night time you know that that kind of there's a certain melancholy i think or mournfulness that they evoke at least for me and i don't know whether that's just a sort of inherited um thing but there's yeah just that kind of feeling of of night time and and the expanse I mean, obviously, with the with the if it's really dark and you're in the woods or something, you you have to rely so much more on your ears and that that sense of just the infinite like expanse of darkness and just the smallest of sounds being much more kind of present in your mind. Um, and also, yeah, as you know, the clocks change back in a couple of well, in a few days on Sunday, and and it's always this time of just night starts to open up and kind of consume the day a bit, and and we just become more aware of of that nightlife i guess and and that that feeling of and also obviously with halloween and this time of yeah remembering the dead and all souls and all saints day and um i think there's a reason that it comes at this time of year you know it's this kind of leading towards rebirth but before you know with christmas and and the kind of um winter uh, solstices and so there is a, a time of reflection before we start to think about sort of new life and and move towards spring this time of year is very much about sort of death and remembering the dead and honouring the dead. And um, so, yeah, I guess the, the increasing amounts of night and nighttime and, and uh, presence of things like owls is, is a part of that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, um, that's, you've just answered sort of 
pretty much every other question I was going to ask you. I wonder if that um, is that inspiring the music that you're making at the moment, or are you having a bit of a rest and reflective time in your work? I mean, I'm at the moment. I've yeah, it's, I'm just beginning to try and open up a space in my mind to 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 welcome new things in, having just kind of put this thing to to rest and finish this and um and very very much i always love the 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 sense of winter and the and the kind of cozier darker sort of months and and i find it often a very productive time and um a time when the sort of subconscious is like more there's more time to sort of germinate ideas and for you know the kind of things that maybe like the seeds before they actually sprout they're still kind of very much doing important work and and just the being without light and in the dark for all that time is sort of there's a kind of pregnancy to this time of year, which I always loved. Um, and I find spring and summer, strangely, the least productive times. There's too many distractions and, and the weather's so nice and, and it's very hard to kind of focus and, and be in my own space. So I've, I've always found that this next stretch of time through autumn into winter and um, through till kind of early, early spring, a, a very kind of inspiring and often quite productive time creatively. Um, and then I've, I've often thought about spring and summer as these times of sort of going out and, you know, being more out in the world and, and sort of gathering experiences or whatever it is that then come back and incubate and kind of um, realise themselves and um, come to fruition or begin to kind of yeah, germinate and sort of come to fruition over that winter months and then, you know, release or let go of these things more in the kind of spring, summer. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know exactly what, I mean, the the whole texture and feeling of the of the world is so different at the moment given all this kind of absolute madness that's that's happening around us and so it'll be interesting to see how that affects you know abilities to focus or the creative pursuits but no I'm, I'm i'm excited about the prospect of the coming months and the time and the yeah just excited to see what will, what will come of it all good yeah me too um definitely very much so for very similar reasons and um do you find your music making follows that seasonal pattern generally has it has it always done I think so yeah just because I've often um I often find I mean in the summers like often I've I've spent um a lot of my summer um in British Columbia and in Canada and I've gone off on these kind of ex- travelings or lots of gathering of of potential seeds of um and then often I find September through, yeah, through till Christmas is the time to really put that into, um, sow that back into the soil or something. And then, and then the rest of it kind of just trickles around and emerges and, and you never know quite how all those, um, inspirations or, or ideas or, um, beginnings of ideas or things are going to then, um, grow or sprout or turn into things. But so no, I, I definitely find that, um, spring, summer is more of an outward expansive sort of time. And then, autumn winter's more just like put that all into a big pot and turn it around and just see what actually comes out the other side of it all. so it's yeah it's kind of like gathering and then and then sort of brewing and fermenting um through the through the kind of autumn winter months and so we shall yeah. see i'm not quite sure what will yeah. give rise to see what soup you're you're making um yeah exactly <laughs> wonderful thanks cosmo for um like sharing so uh, in such beautiful illustrative ways your your process and 
and relationship with with the world outside and it's been yeah really inspiring and um hopefully will people will listening will find inspiration in their own creative processes this season um Great. so thank you thanks for your time no, thanks for inviting me along pleasure yeah lovely to chat wake up calls by cosmo sheldrake is out now on streaming platforms and available on limited edition vinyl from october the 30th in fact they literally arrived yesterday yes. um, morning which uh, which i wasn't anticipating when i suddenly got a pallet load of records for <laughs> but, um, lucky you were but, there yeah exactly um i think my parents would have had a small meltdown <laughs> if i hadn't been but um but so yeah no there's a few left definitely a few left and um right it always feels in this particularly in this kind of funny digital era we live in that music doesn't really exist until it's a physical object. Um, at least in, yeah. my, in my mind, it's, it's always just the, the moment of completion when you can actually hold something in your hands and it weighs something. And it's, so it's very satisfying. And I finally feel like it's come full, full loop and it's, it really exists in my mind now. So, um, so I'm very excited about it. Yeah, and I hope that people enjoy it. A few copies are still available to pre-order from his website or Bandcamp page. And you can find all of these links alongside the beautiful artwork by Flora Wallace portraying the owl whose song closes the album, all on the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk. The midpoint between autumn equinox and winter solstice has bookmarked an eventful chapter in human history since time as a construct began. In China, it's the Double Yang Festival on October the 25th, the ninth day of the ninth month of the lunar calendar, a day of too much yang, which makes it dangerous. It's therefore, of course, customary to climb a high mountain. On the other side of the Himalayas, in Nepal, India, Bhutan and Burma, the festivals of Desai and Sharada Navaratri celebrate Durga, the goddess of time and death, and the triumph of good over evil. One of her ten different forms are worshipped each day of the 15-day festival, such as the daughter of the mountains, mother nature, a devoted student and a demon slayer. The ancient Celtic festival of Samhain was the most important of the quarterly fire festivals here, marking the end of the harvest and the year. While the harvest was being gathered, the hearth fires were left to burn out, so when the work was done, a bonfire was lit with the sparks of a spinning wheel, and everyone took a flame from it to relight their own fires, but only after sharing in much merriment for at least a few days and nights. During Samhain, the barrier between the natural and the supernatural worlds was believed to be breachable, as this was when the spirits of ancestors returned and of those who died that year departed. But while the ancestors were filled in on the latest news, shape-shifting monsters and fairies could also slip through, so people left harvest offerings out to appease them and dressed up as monsters themselves to scare them away. Characters like Lady Gwyn, a headless woman who chased night wanderers dressed in white with a black pig, or the Dullahan, sometimes showing up as headless horsemen and a death omen to anyone who encountered them.
As the fire festivals got more popular in the Middle Ages, families started to light their own bonfires for better protection and began carving jack-o'-lanterns from turnips or pumpkins. Burning logs were tossed, fireworks set off, and the poor would go door to door, singing for the dead in exchange for a soul cake. When the Romans conquered the Celts, they added their own customs for commemorating the dead. And, sometime in the 8th century, November the 1st became All Saints' Day, followed by All Souls' Day on November the 2nd. The eve of All Saints' Day was holy or hallowed, hence All Hallows' Eve. For thousands of years before Halloween, El Día de los Muertos, the Mexican Day of the Dead, has been celebrated on October the 31st at the time of the maize harvest. To the Aztec, Toltec and other pre-Hispanic groups, mourning the dead was considered disrespectful. On the Day of the Dead, death is celebrated as a natural phase of life when the spirits return to altars loaded with food and water and marigold petals lead the way from gravesite to resting place. In the early 20th century, a Mexican cartoonist illustrated a short sarcastic poem for a newspaper that poked fun at the living, the likes of which were traditionally inscribed on tombstones. He drew a character dressed in fancy European garb, whose head was a skull, a calavera, appearing next to the quote, Todos somos calaveras, we are all skeletons, we're all the same. Now, are you sitting comfortably? Then here's a story from the Embers Collective, narrated by Lonan Jenkins to music played by Tim Carp and Jon Benk. The Skeleton Woman Nobody quite remembers what it was she'd done to anger her father so much. But whatever it was, he'd thrown her from a cliff and she sank down to the bottom of the sea. Down below the waves, her body began to decompose as the little fish began to nibble at her fingers, her eyeballs, her lips, her toes and her tongue. Until all that was left was her shining white skeleton. For hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, she tossed and turned on the sandy floor being pulled this way and that with the currents and waves. There was no light this far under the surface, but her skeleton seemed to glow. So much that it attracted lots of fish and crabs that came to live in her skull and ribcage, attaching themselves to her bones. And it was there that she remained for a very long time. fisherman was sitting in his boat, his line sinking down into the water. The sky was a sunset red and purple and the air was cold, so he shivered in his tiny boat which rocked from side to side with the waves. He was a good fisherman, good, not great, and like all the other fishermen he woke up before the sun was out and spent all day until the sun set trying to get the best catch. 
Unlike the other fishermen, however, when he went home in the evening, he went home to an empty house. For whatever reason, he had been unable to find someone to share his house, his bed, someone to keep him warm at night. Perhaps it was because he was shy, or perhaps it was because he always smelled of fish, or maybe it was because he'd never caught a trophy fish, one big enough to warrant a village feast. But he never complained about it. In fact, he rarely even mentioned it. And when the other villagers asked him how he was, he'd say, Fine, thanks. The only evidence that he was sad or lonely was at night when he was asleep in his cold bed. A single tear would escape from his eye and run down his cheek and drip into his pillow. Today, sitting in his boat, all he thought about was catching that trophy fish and now everyone would love him and have plenty to eat. And then, he began to feel something tug on the end of his line, something heavy, really heavy, and he pulled and he pulled and he pulled, and it began to grow lighter and lighter as it rose up to the surface. He locked his knees into the boat so he could pull even harder, and it continued to rise up to the surface as he turned around to grab his neck, uh, grab his net, and he didn't see the skeleton rising up out of the water. And as he turned, gave one last tug to see the skeleton flopping into his boat, the white bones reflecting and glowing in the early morning light, seashells had attached themselves like jewels to her skull, seaweed draped off her shoulders and crabs popped in and out of her eye holes. Ah! He screamed, stumbling backwards, falling into the bottom of his boat. Panic churned in his stomach as he jumped up, causing the boat to rock from side to side. Not realising the skeleton was firmly wrapped up in his fishing line, he gathered up the bones and chucked them over the side. And then he began to paddle. He paddled and he paddled and he paddled. And at one point he glanced behind and saw the skeleton riding in the wake, smiling a toothless smile. And so he paddled harder and harder and harder until his boat reached the shore, where he jumped out, grabbed all of his things and began to run. If anyone had seen him running, they would have thought he lost his mind. He was sprinting and every now and again glancing behind him and screaming, seeing the skeleton jingling and jangling along behind him. And no matter how fast he ran, the skeleton always managed to keep up until he burst in through the door of his house and slammed it shut. And he stood in the darkness waiting to catch his breath. That was quite a day. And then he lit his whale oil lamp, which illuminated his tiny hut and began to arrange his things for dinner. And then he took his coat off and turned around to see the skeleton lying inside the door staring at him. But now it didn't look quite as scary as it was before. Maybe it was the light from the whale oil lamp, but there was something warmer about it, something softer. And he began to feel sorry for the skeleton. By now it was very jumbled and mixed up. Its foot was jammed up under the jaw, the arms wrapped under the ribcage. Yes, he thought it was a bit weird, but it was kind of nice to just have someone come visit his hut. And so he got down on his knees and he began to arrange the bones. And it was then that he realised that his fishing line was wrapped and tangled around the skeleton, so he took his knife and cut it loose. And then he began to lay out the bones in the order that they should be in. 
first the feet, then the legs, then the hips and then the spine and ribs, the neck and the skull and the arms. And as he did so, he sang a little song. When he finished, he placed a fur over the skeleton, not to hide it, just to keep it warm. And he sat down and ate his dinner with the skeleton watching him in silence. And then he crawled under his fur blankets and went to sleep. And that night, just like every other night, in his sleep a little tear escaped from his eye and ran down his cheek. But this time it didn't seep into his pillow. The skeleton watched as the tear seeped out and ran down and she suddenly became incredibly thirsty, like she hadn't had anything to drink for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And so she began to move and crawl and sudder and shake as she moved across the floor, her bones gleaming in the light from the lamp until she reached his cheek, where she placed her mouth under the tear so it slid off into her mouth. And once she did, she felt revived like she had drunk long and deep, like the tear was that of a thousand rivers. And then lying next to him, she reached inside the sleeping man and pulled out his heart, which she began to beat like a drum. And she beat herself into existence. Skin, hair, eyes, nose, fingers, lips, tongue, toes, Skin, hair, eyes, nose, fingers, lips, tongue and toes. And when she had finished, she stood in the dim light, the complete woman that she had once been. She placed his heart back inside and crawled into the bed next to him under his furs so they lay next to each other skin against skin. And this is how they woke wrapped around one another, tangled up from the night before. The next morning, they got up and went fishing together. This time, they had absolutely no problems catching all the fish they could ever want or need. And in the evenings, they would eat together and keep each other warm at night, and so it was for the rest of their days. And I've been told that this story is 100% true. And who are we to say otherwise?
wanted to share with you a few excerpts I've extracted from the interpretation of this tale given by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. From the seminal book, Women Who Run With The Wolves, in much of Western culture, the original character of the death of nature has been covered over by various dogmas and doctrines until it is split off from its other half, life. We have been taught that death is always followed by more death. It is simply not so. Death is always in the process of incubating new life, even when one's existence has been cut down to the bones. Rather than seeing life and death as opposites, they must be held together as the left and right side of a single thought. Within a single relationship, there are many endings. Skeleton woman is always thrown over the cliff when one or both lovers cannot stand or understand her. The fisherman's challenge is to face Lady Death, her embrace, her life and death cycles. When lovers are able to tolerate the life-death-life-nature, when they are able to understand it as a continuum, as a night between two days, and as the force that creates a love that endures a lifetime, they are able to face the skeleton woman. Then, together, they are strengthened, and both are called to a deeper understanding of the two worlds they live in, one the mundane world, the other the world of the spirit. For most, when first confronting the skeleton woman, the impulse is to run like the wind and as far away as possible. Even running is part of the process. It's only human to do so, but not for long and not forever. Those who care to love emulate the fishermen. They strive to light the fire and face the life-death-life-nature. They contemplate what they fear and paradoxically respond with both conviction and wonder. To untangle skeleton woman is to understand that love does not mean all glimmering candles and increase. To understand her means that one finds heartening rather than fear in the darkness of regeneration. It means balm for old wounds. It means changing our ways of seeing and being to reflect the health rather than the dearth of the soul. This skeleton is composed of hundreds of small and large odd-shaped sticks and knobs in continuous harmonious relationship to one another. When one bone turns, the rest turn, even if imperceptibly. When life moves, the bones of death move sympathetically. When death moves, the bones of life begin to turn too. And when one tiny bone is out of place, chipped or spurred, it hurts the integrity of the whole. A wild patience is required in order to untangle the bones, to learn the meaning of Lady Death, to have the tenacity to stay with her. It would be a mistake to think that it takes a muscle-bound hero to accomplish this. It does not. It takes a heart that is willing to die and be born and die and be born again and again. One need only care to untangle her.
The power in knowing the life-death-life nature awaits lovers who go beyond running away, who push beyond a desire to find themselves safe. Holding the threads of these mysteries and untangling them brings a powerful knowing about fate and time. Time for all things, all things in their own time, rolling with the rough, gliding on the smooth. That is what awaits the lover who will sit by the fire with Skeleton Woman. Reaching the end of the growing cycle, as the fields lie empty and the trees stand bare, the harvest and the long summer days come to an end, and inside we hunker down for the winter. Outside, festivals of fire and light transform the darkness, warming our spirits. But sometimes too many bright nights at this time of year can leave me feeling burnt out. Yet the idea of a winter without gathering together does certainly seem a stark prospect. I'm sure a winter lockdown will be more difficult in many ways to the spring, but it does at least feel a little more synchronised with the turning inwards that we see outside and perhaps feel more on the inside. Life is different and strange, but nothing alive ever stays the same. That would be actual death. I trust that we will adapt, as we always do, and find ways of keeping the spark of our spirits alive, as we always have. Meanwhile, perhaps this season will offer the kind of hibernation that the incessant cogs of normal life often refuse us. As the seasons subtly shift and the world around us transforms, so do we, with our many masks, some of which we might try to keep hidden, some which we hide behind, but no one has one face all of the time, even if that's how it might appear. Moving through a changing environment, our nature is nurtured by what surrounds us, by what we surround ourselves with. Relationships with those living in this world and in memory, whether close or distant friends and relatives, animals, strangers or neighbours, these are the bridges between our fragmented selves and separate lives, and the mortality of us all is what makes me truly treasure being alive. It's a brief chance we get to be here and it can be reassuring to remember, as I wrote in one of my blogs, that death is the worst thing that can happen. So why wouldn't we take risks, live the dreams, love with all our hearts? Be afraid of not doing that. Time is always ticking, but the measure of success need not always be what we achieve with it and how long that lasts, but how we spend it, the quality of time and attention we give to ourselves, to others and to the planet we call home. What we fear to lose or lack is that which we care for most, because grief, to quote Jamie Anderson, is just love with nowhere to go. 
Death is not such a morbid or taboo subject for many cultures, especially in countries where life is lived more precariously. I wonder if the distance that has grown between us and the dead has allowed space for a growing fear of death that's part of the reason we're in pandemic pandemonium in the Western world. Perhaps this closer proximity to death will change our relationship with it, with ourselves and with the dead as well as the living. Many of us may be grieving the warmer aspects of life that are missing in the time of covid But history shows us to be a resilient, creative species that layers new traditions on top of old and adapts to changing times and environments. So like the skeletons of the trees outside, we can stand the cold together, remembering and reminding each other that we are not doing it alone and that this time too shall pass. Thank you for listening to the Balanced Garden podcast, which is independently produced by me, Tiger Lily Raphael, and me, Jasmine Pradhan. The soundtrack comes from the Manasseh Meets Praise LP, produced by my father, Nick Manasseh, and licensed by Roots Garden Records. For links to the music and to find photos, as well as other sources, head to the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk where you can also subscribe to the mailing list and receive an email when the next podcast is out in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, live well and enjoy. Growing together, cultivating the spaces between us. Balanced Garden is a well-living platform that bridges the world inside and outside. We offer ideas for reflections, recipes and practices through a podcast, blog, yoga and workshops that support healthy relationships with ourselves, each other, nature and all the spaces in between.